0: Well, that's a mouthful, all of that. What in the world is going on in those two chapters? Well, if this is a little bit of a, a beacon, let me just give you the big idea of these two chapters, okay? And I'm going to repeat it several times, so if you don't get it all down, it's okay. When our trust is in man the Lord takes away our supply that He might become everything to us. When our trust is in man, the Lord takes away our supply that He might become everything to us. Or you could say that our text is about God giving by taking away. Okay? So now, first off, as we approach this text, we're going to probably do things like this a few times through the book of Isaiah because There's just so much cultural language, history, distance between Isaiah's world and ours, okay? And it's a hard thing sometimes to understand what he's saying. Well, first of all, we need to know what we're reading. We're reading prophecy, okay? And a lot of Isaiah is poetic. It's poetry. So Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord in the range of 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. That was roughly where his... His ministry stretched, long ministry. In his days, Assyria was the primary political military power, okay? And therefore, the primary military threat for the people of Judah, okay? The southern kingdom of God's people. So, a hundred years after his time, Babylon was that world power, and they utterly sacked Jerusalem, in around 586 B.C. Okay? So prophet, Isaiah prophesied of times way beyond his own time, but a lot of what happens in this book is way back in the past for us. Do you see? Okay? So a lot of it has already happened. What we read in 3.1 through 4.1 actually happened. So that's it's important to, to note. And it happened a long time ago. It could be that it applied to some of the effects of the Assyrian advance on Judah because they came and pressed them, threatened them. And it also certainly could refer to the effects of the Babylonians conquering and exiling most of Judah and Jerusalem. They sacked the city, took out all the leaders. You know, this is why Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to Babylon. Okay? Leaders taken away. So... We can't, we shouldn't try to read this text this morning with this immediate kind of one-to-one correlation to our lives, okay? So, for instance, baldness for the women, that has nothing to do with chemotherapy, okay? We just need to make sure we get into the ancient Near East before we understand how to apply it to our, our lives, other passages of Scripture are different. There is that one to one. It's really easy to apply. So when Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, you're like, I understand that. I know weary and heavy laden, and I, I need to come to Jesus. And he's not just talking about physical weariness, but spiritual. Okay, but we understand how that applies. When Paul says, Let love be genuine, or Husbands, love your wives. Okay, the application is immediate, fairly straightforward, but not so here in Isaiah 3-4. to So does that mean that it's not worth reading or wrestling with how to apply this? Anybody? <laughs> no. Okay? All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and it's profitable. Okay, Especially Isaiah. Certainly Isaiah, we should say. So this is like reading history here in part. You don't read history or biography and write yourself into the story. Okay? You weren't there. Well, it's not about you. But as you read and enter into the person's life and story or a nation's story, what happens? It warns you. It challenges you. Sometimes it inspires you. It impacts you. So you, it does apply, and you're changed. So, like the well-worn maxim, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That applies broadly in, in, in all disciplines, I guess you could say, but certainly in God's history, and he gives us his word for this very reason, that we would be warned. Listen to the way that the New Testament speaks of the value of the Old Testament. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Isaiah is here to encourage us and give us hope. Even chapters 3 and 4 if you feel like what is going on here? And 1 Corinthians 10 11 says, now these things happened to them, Old Testament people, as an example and they were written down for our instruction. And then it says, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's interesting. So... They fell because of their pride. Take heed, lesson for us. And that kind of pride is very much at issue here in Isaiah 3 and 4. So we need to take heed lest we fall. So this text is here to keep us from a fall. Okay? It's a loving purpose, even if we feel like, what is going on? So, um, Chad will have the... Uh, The slide's up there, the outline, if you want to follow that way, or there's a copy in your bulletin um, of of the outline. So first point, the Lord takes away all societal stability and security. Um, Chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. So again, big, big idea. Remember, when our trust is in man, the Lord takes away our supply that he might become everything to us. Okay, so Isaiah was speaking into a generation intoxicated with itself, a generation that needed to hear the verse that, that is right before our section. Look just at the end of chapter 2, 222. This is what the Lord was saying to them, stop regarding man, stop thinking so highly of people and people. Thinking so such small thoughts of me. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You're living for his praise. You're, You're so afraid of man. So what will the Lord do if those who claim to be his people fail to heed his word? If you won't stop trusting in man, I will take away all opportunity to do so. So this is how he worked in the past. We can learn for ourselves today from how God worked in the past. Okay, so we're going to see what happened, and then we're going to see how it applies to us. Three, one. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. Actually, the same word um, is used there twice, once in the masculine and once in the feminine. So it just speaks of totality. Um, Just everything's going to be taken away. All support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful musician, the expert in charms, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Okay, so the people of Judah, they were taking pride in their own power, their might. They're, They're sticking their fingers in the ears to the warnings from the Lord, Is your trust in your military, your political, your religious leaders, your wise men, your sense eyes, your gurus, your experts, well, you know what? I'm going to take them away, and I'm going to make boys and infants your rulers. In other words, the inexperienced, those hardly fit for these rules, are going to be ruling over you now. Okay, So what what ends up happening when the stability of leadership is taken away, kind of the carpet being pulled out? Look at verse 5. Chaos ensues, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. The authority structures, good authority structures, just crumbling. Things are just getting desperate. Look at the desperation in verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. That's a pretty minimal leadership qualification. you got a coat. Um, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. So, again, you have this prosperous city. Then you have a superpower like Assyria or Babylon that comes in and, and especially Babylon, takes away. If, if you want to squash a kingdom... And make sure it's never going to be a threat for you again. You take away all the leaders. Take away all the promise, all the strength, all the potential uprising and, and, you know, the ability to amass power and strength. So it's going to get so desperate, then they're going to say, hey, you've got a coat. You lead us because there's just no leaders left. So you trusted in those leaders, and this is what happens. I'm going to take it away. In that day, he will speak out, verse 7, saying, I will not be a healer. Okay, it's a metaphorical term for a leader. Do you remember back in chapter 1 where it said, why will you be struck down? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. Okay, so in keeping with these themes of soul sickness that characterized the people, they needed a healer, they needed a leader. And he said, "Uh uh-uh, I will not be a healer in my house. There is no bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. So, really dire, sobering situation. We fear this kind of societal collapse, don't we? We fear societal disintegration. And oftentimes it comes on the heels of poor leadership. But... One thing that might be worth us noticing is that God is in even times like this. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. In fact, in this case, it's clear that he's applying a very painful treatment to a very serious disease. When self-worship and worshiping human strength and ingenuity is our disease, this is part of the treatment, part of the cure. So that's what the Lord did. Why did this happen? What was going wrong that this had to be the judgment? Look at verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Remember, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, a lot of people are familiar with that chapter at least. Remember what Isaiah said when he saw the Lord? He, He saw him high and lifted up. And what was his response? Holy, holy, holy Lord. He said, woe is me. I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Their speech and their deeds were against the Lord. Okay, just for what this is worth, a little force for the trees um, orientation. Usually, prophetic books start out with the calling of the prophet, like right up front. But it's very effective that it doesn't come until chapter six, because chapters one to five set the context for Isaiah's ministry. It's so bad. This is the kind of context in which he spoke and preached, okay? And he identified with the people. He, in the light of God's holiness, was also a man of unclean lips, but certainly um, he lived also among a people of unclean lips. So. Their speech, their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. Um, literally, that defying His glorious presence is literally defying the eyes of His glory. Their sin was in God's face, because his, his eyes. See everything. So this was ugly, high-handed rebellion that was characterizing the people. Look at verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. The Lord is taking away, okay? All societal stability, security, but he makes it very clear. He, he's the one taking it away, but he makes it very clear that this is because of their stubborn sin. You see that? So he goes on and says, woe to them. They've brought evil on themselves. Okay, I think sometimes when things start to, if the Lord disciplines or judges people, they get angry at him. Why are you doing this? What? Well, Woe to them, they've brought this evil on themselves, okay? Now, <clears throat> even though this judgment came on Judah, it was not rash and indiscriminate, okay? There were some who were trusting the Lord, faithful remnant like Isaiah. Even though societal collapse was coming and they would certainly be affected by the famine, the danger, etc., cetera, these, these you know, faithful few, Look at what verse 10 says to them. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. It's the Hebrew word tov. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and and it was good. It was good. Tell the righteous that it shall be, it will, it will, be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. We're going to come back to that at the end. Let's keep going. Verse 11, woe, on the contrary, to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. That's the opposite term of, of well, good. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Did you notice the move from plural to singular? Woe to the wicked, that's everybody that, in that category, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. One commentator, Alec Motia, writes, wickedness cannot lose itself in the crowd. So you may be a part of the crowd, but you will be called to account individually. Sobering word. Verse 12, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. I want to get sidetracked here. That might be offensive to some women. Um, a couple different potential um, interpretations there. It could be uh, on account of the passivity of the, the king or the leaders, really the women are ruling, kind of brazenly ruling in their place. Um, it could just speak of weakness, again, in their day and age. And again, today, physically speaking... Men, women, so infants, women. This is not saying that women are weak in every way, um, but this kind of rule. So, oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. So you see the sad irony there? Guides that are misleading. And then these, these bad leaders are actually eating up the signposts on the path. they swallowed up the course of your paths. Okay, so this is what happens when you trust in mere humans. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the elders and the princes. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Okay, so the elders would be the local community leaders, and the princes were the royalty And these leaders have devoured the vineyard. Vineyard is a metaphor for the people of God. We'll see that in the next chapter, chapter 5, a parable of the people of God, a song about the people of God as the vineyard. Okay, so do you see, there's lots of details here, but do you see the heart of God in verses 14 to 15? He is on the side of his people, the poor, who are oppressed and abused. Okay, so leaders are supposed to be a gift They're supposed to bless and protect and provide for and serve, especially the weak, the poor, the helpless, the vulnerable, right? That is God's heart. That's his heart for the leaders that he raises up. Just think about the Lord Jesus. He is this kind of leadership personified. He is our leader. Aren't you glad that Jesus is our leader? Not guys like this. Mark 10.45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Those who feed on the people, rather than feeding the people, he will judge. So, Verses one to fifteen. there's this special emphasis on the failures of the men at the time and the Lord's judgment. Now, as we turn to verses 16 to the beginning of chapter 4, there's actually a special emphasis on the failures of the women in Judah and the Lord's judgment. So look at point 2, the Lord takes away all social pride and beauty. Verse 16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, And walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery. I'm not going to read that list again, okay? So note first here that these women are referred to as the daughters of Zion. Zion is another term for Jerusalem, okay? Here's the point. Like mother, like daughters. They characterized, these daughters of Zion, the pride and the vanity that filled the city. Okay, the city that should have been the faithful city, filled with humility, filled with people who, who worshiped the Lord and gloried in their God, wanted to be enthralled with His beauty. Instead, it's filled with these women prideful, vain. So the Lord is going to take away what they trust in, right? All social pride and beauty that they value, that they trust in, and because of which they feel superior. And it looks like they did all this at the expense of the poor. So again, remember the big idea, when our trust is in man, the Lord takes away our supply that he might become everything to us. Okay, so serious disease requires serious measures to wake a generation like this and subsequent generations, again, back then, from their prideful, their vain stupor. Look at verse 24. This is really sobering stuff. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. They're going into captivity. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. People would pull out their hair when they were mourning and, and in dire straits. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Again, symbol of mourning. And branding instead of beauty. So their beauty in which they trusted has now been replaced with this ugly symbol of their slavery, this branding. And then verse 25, your men, so the men of, the that belong to these women. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. Again, they trusted in them and they're going to be taken away. And then note how the pronouns shift here in verse 26. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. So this is talking about the city as a whole, okay? Personified. Her gates, she. Her gates are filled with weeping. She's totally empty and destitute. The same desperation that characterized the leadership collapse, you know, in the first 15 verses is characterizing this social collapse, um, family collapse among the women. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, and seven women shall take hold of, remember how the men will take hold of this guy and say, hey, you be our leader. It's the same language. Seven women will take hold of one man in that day, the day of God's judgment, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Which is the reversal of the customs of the time, of bride prices. (laughs) It's the guy that's supposed to, you know, shell out the cows for his wife. But instead, they're so desperate that they're saying, we won't be a burden on you. We'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So these desperate women will be disappointed as they continue to trust in man to take away their reproach. Okay, the Lord said back in chapter two that he was gonna bring down every exalted lofty thing that sets itself up against his supremacy, right? Look back at 2.11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Okay, so the people of God so-called, at the time, were trusting in, they were hoping in, they were regarding man, people, most highly. Judah's drug of choice was the strength, the power, the ingenuity, the social prestige that comes from man. That's who they looked to. That's what they trusted in. They were orient, oriented horizontally. And so, like it says in verse 9 of chapter 2, they went horizontal. They were humbled, brought low, because they were bowing down to created things. They were worshiping created things. That's what they really loved and treasured. They weren't regarding the Lord. So he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? They didn't heed that warning. So the Lord took it all away like taking an alcoholic stash, taking a a gambler's or a drug addict's access to money, taking it away. What happens? Well, they're going to suffer withdrawal. They taste the bitter fruit of what they've sown. But the Lord is doing it so that ultimately He could heal them. His ultimate intention in all of this is to give them real support and supply. He's taking it away in order that he would be their everything. That's the big idea. When our trust is in man, the Lord takes away our supply that he might become our supply, that he might become our everything. So look, point three now, the Lord will make his people truly beautiful. Chapter four, verses two to four. Okay, so again, in the context here, the women of Judah, of Zion, they're after beauty, but they were looking for it in the wrong place. So God made them ugly. Not because he's mean and vicious, but because he's a good healer, because he wants to make us truly beautiful. And he does it by means of his beautiful branch. Look at verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. Okay, so he just said that in the place of beauty, they're going to have branding, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. That branch of the Lord, again, we don't talk this way, but that was a clear title at that time for the Messiah. Okay, This is Jesus, ultimately. Okay, So when our ideas of beauty are all horizontal, when we live according to the idolatries of skin deep, God would hate us if he were to stand by idly. It would be to leave us empty. He loves us too much for that. So he promises the branch, this beautiful, glorious branch to make his people beautiful and to give them his glory. So if we fast forward ahead, In Isaiah, to a passage that many of us are familiar with, we see how the Lord makes his people truly beautiful. Flip ahead to Isaiah 53. This is obviously a prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Here's the branch. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Hmm. So their pride and vanity was ugly, right? even though these women would have been on the cover of the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of El or Allure, okay? Two magazines I have never read. I Googled number one fashion beauty magazine, and those were the two websites that I didn't click that came up, okay? So some of you probably know what those are. If you don't, you still get the point, all right? So these ladies would have been on the cover, these daughters of Zion, And their haughty beauty was ugly. So God made them ugly to show them the reality of their souls. But his purpose ultimately was not to just rub their nose in it. His ultimate purpose was to make his people truly beautiful. And he does it by means of the beautiful branch. Think about it this way. I think this is just... This is the wisdom of the gospel. This is so beautiful. Pun intended, okay? It's like the weakness and the foolishness, quote unquote, of the cross. The world says, not going to get very far if you do that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. you just lost. What a tragic death on a cross. Shameful. What good is that? Power, wisdom, beauty, get ahead. No, 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 no. The cross is is the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. So Jesus didn't have to come looking like, you know, some stud, stately king and just, you know, everybody will serve me. No, instead, he didn't need any form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we would desire him because... He was coming to change us from the inside out. So when our trust is in the beautiful branch, okay, who condescended, took on flesh, even like a slave, even to the point of death, death on a cross, this shameful death, so that we could be made new and made truly beautiful from the inside out. When our trust is in the beautiful branch, then we will know fullness Okay, Zion was like this destitute woman, empty. But look at the result of this day when the branch will come. In that day, the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Okay, remember back to 3.10? I said we would look at this later. Tell the righteous, even in the midst of all that, you know, kind of threat and the judgment that's coming, God says to Isaiah, hey, tell the righteous that it will be Well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. And here it is, in that day the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Look at what else is said of the righteous remnant here in four three. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Only Jesus, only the gospel of grace is powerful enough to transform our hearts, to transform our leadership, okay? to transform our ideas of beauty, and to create real stability, real security, real beauty. So Jesus went through the fire of judgment. He went through the fires of God's just condemnation for us so that the only fire that's left for us, if we're trusting in him, is the refining fire of purification. Which is why, in the face of terrible loss... So you can imagine, if you were a person like Isaiah... Isaiah, by church tradition, was sawn in two. That's how he died. And yet these promises were true for him. So they were going to go through severe times as a result of the sin of the majority of the people. But... If we know and have a relationship with Jesus, the only burning that happens for us is that which burns away the dross and purifies the gold of our faith. Okay? He went through the fire of judgment so that we wouldn't have to. The fire that's left for us washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, cleansed the bloodstains by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning... It's a refiner's fire that's meant that we would come forth as gold. Okay, this is why in the face of terrible loss, when the Lord takes away, even for us, the righteous can say, naked I came from my mother's room, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or how about Romans 8? Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Neither famine, or nakedness, peril, sword. If you know Christ, all those things are a purifying context, refiner's fire to make us truly beautiful. That's how we can be more than conquerors, even through dire straits like that. So again, remember back to 3.10, tell the righteous it shall be well with them, even if they've got to go through the fires of judgment Because of the sin of the majority of the people, they will eat the fruit of their deeds. So hang in there. So listen to this quote by Ray Ortland. I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least one Ray Ortland quote quote in every Isaiah message because that commentary that is uh, the book of the month is so good. He says this, When their pride forced him to it, God exchanged pretense with reality. And life tailed off into unspeakable sadness as wealthy women, secure in their luxury and their allure, are reduced to scabrous hags begging to belong to someone. To swagger the way men do, to display false beauty the way women do, that is not the glory God created us for. The secret beauty of a Christian woman is a persona radiant with the Holy Spirit. First Timothy 2, 9 and 10, 1 Peter 3, 4. The world does not have a category for that beauty, but it's real. A God-filled woman is beautiful, whatever her age or features. I love this. She is dressed properly for the occasion, capital T, capital O, that coming day when the Lord alone will be exalted. So the women were haughty and vain. They wanted the wrong kind of beauty. The Lord takes away all social pride and beauty. When our trust is in man, the Lord will take away our supply that he might become everything to us. He wants to give us true and lasting beauty. So in the first 15 verses, we saw that the Lord took away all the societal stability and security. And again, he's doing it so that he would become everything to us he wants to give us true and lasting stability and security okay there's there's like an abba structure here so the men the leadership and the societal structure stability is is taken away the beauty's taken away beauty is returned and societal stability is returned did you see that that's what's going on here in the passage So let's look at what the Lord is creating here, Um, this perfectly stable, secure place. Chapter four, verses five and six. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What was that symbolic of in the Old Testament? Do you remember? When 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 was there a cloud and smoke and the and flaming fire? Okay, let him out through the wilderness from Egypt. Okay, so it symbolized his presence with his people, guiding and protecting them. When else? Any other place where there was smoke and fire? No. Of temple, temple. Yeah. yeah. Tabernacle as well. In the temple, the presence of the Lord was, was kind of visible that way. So it's symbolic of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, filling the temple. The Lord was present with his people. He led his people. This is the kind of leadership we need for a stable, secure society, right? Symbolic of his presence, his guidance, his protection. But do you see how things are ratcheted up here? This is great. This cloud and smoke and fire is not just over a little tabernacle or even a big temple, or over a people as they go through the wilderness, where is this cloud? Do you see it there? Verse 5. Over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies. Okay? Over the whole site. I mean, you'd think that in this day there would be no more need for a temple. And you'd be right. (laughs) Because we are his temple. His presence is over his churches now, over her assemblies, right? And the church is like the forward guard of heaven. Okay? It's like the heavenly outpost that people meet before they meet Jesus at the end. Church the people of, of God in, in gatherings in churches today on this earth are like embassies of the city of heaven. And then one day, this prophecy is going to have final fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And then look at this beautiful promise at the end of verse 5, Isaiah 4, 5. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. I didn't know what this was before studying it this week. You know what that canopy refers to? It's a wedding canopy. The first readers would have known that right away. So think through the language in those first few chapters. 121, how the faithful city has become a whore because of their sin. And then by means of redemption in 126, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And then 2 5, or 4 5, I should say, is the final fulfillment of that, speaking of. Love and intimacy that we will know that we will have with God forever. This wedding canopy over God dwelling with his people. It's just like Revelation 21 two, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then finally, again, speaking of this security and stability that the Lord will produce uh, by means of this Branch by means of Jesus in the gospel. Verse 6 There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Okay, it is so tempting when the winds are blowing, the rain is coming down, it's howling outside. It's so tempting to look to man for shelter and protection and provision, to trust in people, to run to them. When the threats come, where do you run first? But it's like building your house in the sand. So when our trust is in man, the Lord takes away graciously, mercifully. It's a severe mercy. He takes away our supply that He might become everything to us. He wants to build our houses on the rock so that He is the shade. Like it says in verse um, 6 there, He is the shade and refuge and shelter both now and forever. Okay, so let me just summarize and wrap things up this way. Um, I know that's a lot of ground we've covered, but we're going to sing It Is Well in response this morning. I want you to know why we chose that song. Um, Recently, we've made some changes to the structure of our service, wanting to um, reflect the pattern of the gospel in the structure of the service. So we start with a big God, all creatures of our God and King, He's our God. He's our King. He's worthy of all of our worship. And then we've worshiped and served, created things. We need mercy. God have mercy on us. And then Jesus paid it all. So God, our sin, Christ our Savior, sufficient supply. And then response. What's the response to the gospel? What's the response to the word of God? Well, this morning it's going to be it as well. Okay, so I was thinking about this gospel rhythm thing recently, and I thought about how, you know what? We get out of rhythm in life quite a bit. We get off beat. If that happens in music, it's really ugh, cringeworthy, you know, to your ear. Well, we spiritually get out of rhythm. We get off beat, or like an instrument. We get out of tune. We need to be tuned by the gospel of Jesus. So like me, maybe some of you, the last two days, Oh, man, there were times that I was out of rhythm to my shame, my stupid, sinful heart. And I knew that we were going to be reciting Psalm 51. At one point, I think it was yesterday, one point yesterday, I realized I'm so glad we're going to be reciting Psalm 51 together tomorrow. Actually, I read it last night, but, but I knew that I needed that. I needed to be retuned. I needed to get back into rhythm. So Sunday service is almost like, you could think about it like a, a gospel metronome. Does anybody know what a metronome is? To keep the rhythm. So you and I are so prone to put our trust in man. And then we reap the the effects of it. And the Lord is so gracious to give us a weekly reminder like this to keep us in rhythm. Like when we sung... um, What's the first song? Uh, Creatures of our God and King." Can you put verse three up from um, All Creatures of Our God and King? Sorry, I didn't give Chad's heads up on that one. Um, But that was so... Good for me. I needed to hear that. All the redeemed, washed by His blood, coming. Wait a second. That's not. Is that verse three? Beginning of verse three. Well, anyway, Um, I I hope that you experience that. I hope that we we find our service together to be like that. And even though there's lots of distance between Isaiah's world and ours, if we realize there's nothing new under the sun, our our hearts are prone to the very same thing, when we get out of sync, out of tune, off beat, we come at least every week and like, oh, I need to fall back in. I need practice at this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at living in the gospel of grace and regarding the Lord rather than regarding man. Who cares? So, Listen, it is well with my soul. If you are weighed down with your sin, you come in this morning, there's some good truth to preach to your soul, to sing together in response to this righteous branch that's, you know, he lived and died to make us beautiful from the inside out. That's really good news. And we can be brought back into rhythm. And if you're struggling and suffering and maybe there isn't any kind of immediate promise of satisfaction, you know what? There is a day coming. When the Lord will perfectly provide every bit of refuge and protection that you could ever want, your crazy heart's desire, and we will be with him forever under his canopy and know his love, how wide and long and high and deep it is. Okay, so though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Tell the righteous, righteous in Christ, by his merits not our own, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... This passage that says so clearly that because of Jesus, the righteous branch, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn their stupid pride and vanity for they shall be comforted. And I pray that we would take these promises to heart and be encouraged. In Jesus' name.